Well, good morning. If you brought your Bibles, and I hope that you did, turn with me to the book of Matthew. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through, I think I said that wrong. It is Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. I had 25 there. 21 through 35. My name is Scott Burns. I'm the youth and family pastor here at Alliance. If you're visiting with us or you've just returned here for the summer, our senior pastor, Scott Andrews, is on a three-month sabbatical. Currently, he's in the Middle East uh, ministering to believers there. While he's away, uh, we are in a series we have entitled Life Together. We are seeking answers from the Bible on what it takes to build a gospel-centered community. On week one, we learned that life together always involves prayer for each other. We are always to pray and not give up. The parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18 showed us that. We also saw that life together is hindered by pride or a self-absorbed or self-righteous attitude. On week two, we learned that life together finds its foundation in the gospel. We were in 1 Corinthians 1 and we were reminded that life together as a church family, it can be messy because we are all works of God in progress. We are saints by calling, but we are also people who still struggle with sin. We are still being sanctified. We also saw that life together can be threatened by division, and we saw that there's a call for unity in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Last week, Dick Bransford stepped in and shared his life and experiences as a missionary. Life together enables missions. Some of us are called to go, but all of us are called to be involved in missionary work. The Great Commission is not the Great Suggestion. It is the Great Commission. Jesus commands us to be a people on mission together. There are parts of our world where the gospel is not known. That should break our hearts and it should create in us a desire to act in some way to help change that. This morning we're in Matthew chapter 18. We're going to see this morning that life together requires confession and forgiveness. This sermon is tied to the sermon two weeks ago. Since every person in this room this morning is not perfect, since life together is a little bit messy, we will need to confess our sins to one another. And we will need to extend forgiveness to those who have wronged us. Have you ever been hurt by someone you love? Has a friend ever let you down? Have you ever carried a pain inside of you that was tied to someone sinning against you? All of us in here can answer yes to those questions. Has someone in this church ever let you down? Said or did something that wounded you or didn't do something for you that wounded you? I've been here almost 10 years, and I will confess that there have been times where I have said or did something to someone among our body that was wrong. And I had to go and say, I sinned. And there have been times where church members have had to come and say the same to me. It's a part of church life. Have you ever felt like you could not forgive someone? Do you remember Alex from Rwanda? 
He spoke here around Operation Christmas Child season a while back. He, he shared about forgiving the people who killed his parents in the genocide. He said it was the power of the gospel and the reality that he owed a great debt to God as a sinner that made it possible for him to extend forgiveness to another. The picture on the screen is uh, him shaking hands with the man who killed his family. When he met this man, he said this to him, I'm not here to accuse you, though you wronged me, but I'm here to do something else. And then he, he broke down crying, and he said, I'm here because I saw how God's power works in forgiveness. I received that power. I really want to forgive you so that you have peace and you also repent of everything. I want you to know that even after all the things you did, all the people you killed and hurt, God wants you to come back to him. What makes that kind of forgiveness possible? Could you do that? I've been asking myself that same question this week. Could I do that? Today, the scriptures are going to show us that we can do that. The power of the gospel, the spirit living inside of us can make it so that we can do that. We're also going to see that the scripture calls us to it, to forgive others no matter what. Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As much as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. And it is probably a hard word for some of us. The ultimate message this morning is forgiven people forgive people. Forgiven people forgive people. This is a biblical principle. And it's not just an isolated teaching. Listen to these scriptures, Matthew 6, 12, embedded in the Lord's Prayer, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. A few verses later, for if you forgive others their trespasses, 
your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Mark eleven twenty five. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If anyone has anything against you, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Luke six thirty seven. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Luke 17, 3 through 4. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3, 13. Bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Forgiven people forgive people. Matthew 18.35 says we are to forgive others from the heart. And if we refuse to forgive, the scripture seems to say that we will not be forgiven. So eternity is at stake here. Forgiving others is a command from Jesus. It's also just a statement of reality that spirit-filled people will do. The Bible repeats it over and over. Forgiven people forgive people. When we refuse to forgive others, we're essentially inviting God to refuse to forgive us. Now, it is not that we earn salvation by forgiving others, but an unforgiving heart, it seems to reveal that something has not changed in our own heart. The parable in Matthew 18 illustrates this for us very clearly. Peter comes to the Lord with a question. Jesus has just provided some teaching on how a church is to respond to a believer who's in sin. You see that in verses 15 to 20. The goal is restoration. But Jesus does provide some instruction on church discipline, should the one not repent. Having heard this teaching, Peter comes to Jesus and asks, how often should I forgive my brother who sins against me up, up to seven times? The rabbinic teaching of the day was that you only had to forgive someone three times. It was a good baseball principle. Three strikes and you're out. Peter's been hanging out with Jesus for a while. He's starting to catch on that, that Jesus is about extending mercy. And so he comes to him and he suggests, maybe I should more than double that. Look at Jesus' response. Depending on how your version translates it, it might say 77 times or it might say 70 times 7. The point is Jesus is not providing a math problem for this question. He's not suggesting that we get a little notebook and carry, tarry, you know, do tally marks. There'll be a lot of tally marks. Rather, Jesus says forgiveness in the community of faith is to be unlimited. It's a way of life. Forgiveness is to be like the air we breathe. Jesus is saying that we should always be prepared to forgive repeatedly. In Luke 17, Jesus says if we are sinned against seven times in a day, forgiveness is requested seven times, then forgiveness should be extended seven times. How many church splits would have been avoided if only people would confess and forgive often? How many marriages would still be intact? How many families would still be together? The parable is very clear. 
Jesus says a king decided to settle up with his servants. The word slave, if, if your translation uses that, it actually carries the idea of an official servant who only answers to the king. And in the parable, a servant is brought to the king, perhaps unwillingly. He owes him 10,000 talents. A talent in biblical days was a, a measure of weight. You weigh gold or you weigh silver, so think they owe 10,000 pounds of money or 10,000 tons of money. The ESV study Bible suggests a calculation of $6 billion in today's currency. And commentators suggest similar figures, millions and millions of dollars. The point is clear. This man owes a debt so large it is unpayable. He's bankrupt. So the king demands punishment. He and his wife and his children, they're all going to jail until payment can be made. So the man falls on his face and begs for mercy, saying that in time he will pay it back. Now, the reality is this. The amount is way too large to ever pay back. But seeing the brokenness and desperate plea of this man, the king is filled with compassion and he forgives the debt. He cancels it completely. Picture that. You owe $6 billion and it's forgiven. It's canceled. You don't know a thing. And this same man, he now leaves the presence of the king. He comes upon a man who owes him 100 denarii. That's, in biblical days, a day's wage for a commoner. So this man owes him about one-third of his year's salary. That's a significant amount of money, unless you compare it to six billion. Then it's not that much. This man, having just been forgiven a debt that is completely unpayable, now chokes this man and demands full payment. And he goes and he throws him in jail. When the king hears what this man has done, he calls him wicked. And he throws him in jail. And some of your versions may have to be tortured. So for illustration purposes, it's as if this man has just been forgiven a debt of $1 million, but he's now demanding another man pay him back $100. Or for the teens in this room, it would be like you totaling your parents' brand new car. And them saying to you, you don't have to pay it back because you can't. But then you immediately go to your sibling and begin to choke them because they owe you $10. Or for the kids in this room, it would be like you breaking every one of your mother's dishes, all of them, and being forgiven of that debt. But then you go and you find your sibling and you begin to choke them because they broke your Lego building house thing which could have been rebuilt or another way to understand this parable would be this you come in here today and you joyfully sing songs of praise to God because he's forgiven you of all of your sin known and unknown and then you go out in the parking lot and you refuse to speak to someone or you're rude to them because they hurt your feelings a month and a half ago. That kind of unforgiveness is all too common in churches today. And that is exactly what this parable is confronting. 
Those who have received extraordinary grace, that's all the believers in this room, we should act in accordance with the grace that we have received. As people who have received mercy, mercy should be the attitude that guides our thinking and our behavior towards others. The Bible does not allow us to set boundaries for forgiveness. As C.S. Lewis said, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Think with me for just a moment. What could destroy the church? Is it hell? Jesus said the powers of hell cannot overcome the church. Well, what about persecution? Persecution might reduce our numbers significantly, but it would not destroy the church. Persecution actually seems to strengthen it in other parts of the world. What about false teachers? They've they've been around from the beginning. They've done the church great harm. But the Bible says that they will never overcome the church. They never have. They never will. But listen to Galatians 5.15. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, Watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Instead of biting and devouring each other, we are called to forgive each other just as we have been forgiven. Life together requires confession and forgiveness. From this parable in Matthew 18 and the other verses that I've already read, we see four truths. First, we see that we need forgiveness. The parable is a picture of our great debt before God. The Bible says that all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Our rebellion against God is greater than any of us can truly fathom. We have have missed holiness intentionally and unintentionally. Sometimes our sin is a willful choice. Sometimes it's just simple failure to hit the target and do what is right. We just blow it. But willful or accidental, all sin is rebellion. And it's evidence that we are broken, messy creatures before a holy God. Second, we see that God has extended forgiveness to all who seek it. This is the gospel and it's the picture that we see in the parable. We're forgiven an incalculable debt. God in love did not treat us as our sins deserved. Instead, through Christ's perfect life, we find our righteousness. In Christ's sacrificial death, our sins are paid for. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, Jesus delivers us from the wrath of God. Redemption, forgiveness of sins, it's found in Christ. Think John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God's pardon of our sin is purchased and sealed with the blood of his son. So no sin is too big for the cross. Paul was a murderer of Christians. Christ forgave his sin and transformed him. Peter denied any association with Christ. Christ forgave his sin and transformed him. Used him to build his church. Jesus extended forgiveness to thieves and prostitutes. And he will extend forgiveness to you. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, call upon his name. You will be saved. If you've never done that, I plead with you to do that right now. But many of us have done that. Many in this room have sought forgiveness from God through Christ. And if we have been forgiven, 
then we must be a forgiving people. This is our third point. We must forgive others. The scripture's clear. Forgiven people forgive people. Consider again Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. In a few moments, I'm going to try and flesh that out a little bit more because I recognize that it can get complicated and difficult in certain scenarios. But for now, let me just say that if you're looking for a loophole so that you don't have to forgive certain people, you're not looking at the cross. You're not considering what Christ has done for you. Your sin is great and hell is real. Do you really want Christ looking for a loophole so that he doesn't have to forgive you? I don't. Fourth, forgiveness is a major priority for the church. We might even say that it's more important than attending public worship. Life together requires confession and forgiveness because we're all sinners. And Matthew 5, 23 to 24 says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. God seems very concerned about us being reconciled to one another. Strained relationships within the body of Christ are supposed to be dealt with. Confession and forgiveness is part of reality, the reality of life together. Is that a priority for you? Or do you just decide to attend a different service when something gets strained between you and somebody else? When a relationship is strained within the body of Christ, let us make sure that we do not deal with it in worldly ways. If the gospel has transformed us, let's display that and let's live in a different way. And the Spirit will enable us to do this if we seek Him. Now, the biblical principle that forgiven people forgive people, it might be bringing up a lot of questions. What if someone's not repentant? What does genuine confession sound and look like? How far does the call to forgive extend? How how does forgiveness apply in this situation that I've got, Scott? Does forgiveness require fellowship and, and total restoration? Sometimes these kinds of questions are very hard to sort out in one sermon. A better place might be in life groups or with a trusted group of believers where you you take the principle and you really flesh it out. But let me give you a few guidelines to at least help you think through it. What if you're hurt by someone, like really hurt? How do you begin forgiving them? think two things. First, forgiveness can be found in prayer. I'll lean on Mark eleven twenty five 25 here. It says, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Prayer is a place where forgiveness begins. Forgiveness is not a work that we do apart from Christ. It's a work He does in us. We go to Him and we say, I am really having a hard time here. I need you to work. And it might take time. Second, forgiveness can be found by dwelling on the cross of Christ. 
If we stare at the sin that was done against us, instead of the place where sin was conquered, we will struggle to forgive. Pastor Tim Keller says, It is impossible to forgive someone if you feel superior to him or her. We are people of the cross, and we must look at all of life through the lens of the cross. By looking at the cross, we will be reminded of our own sin, of the forgiveness that Christ extended to us at great cost to himself. And it's there that we will be made able to forgive. The cross does so much for us. It's the best place to kill self-righteousness by pondering your great need, your repeated failures as you sit at the foot of the cross. But if like a Pharisee, we consider ourselves better than others, better than the one who sinned against us, we will have a very hard time forgiving. Okay, does the call to forgive have a limit? Again, Mark eleven twenty five 25 says, Forgive if you have anything against anyone. I don't think the biblical principle that forgiven people forgive people has a limit. But as a pastor, I know there are different levels of sin that result in different levels of pain. So here's my attempt to flesh that out just a little bit. I'm not claiming it's infallible, but maybe it will help you think through it. First, I see kind of what I call level one sins. I'm calling these daily failures. I think most issues in marriage and family, most issues with neighbors, most issues in a church, most sins with our mouth are in this category. James 3 says, no man can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. We're all going to say things we should not have said. We're all going to be reaching for words that we, we can't get back. So I'm putting most of our words in that category. Sometimes we sin. And when we sin against someone, we should confess it. And when we're sinned against in that way, the Bible calls us to forgive. Too many people refuse forgiveness in this kind of a category. And we risk heaven with that kind of attitude. The call is to forgive. Okay. But there are deeper issues. Right? This is what I call level two. Or deep wounds. This is things like adultery. Betrayal. Significant harm. While I believe the call to forgive even these kinds of sins is clear, I fully recognize that it will likely be a process, perhaps a long one. Fellowship might not ever look quite the same. But I put Christ's example before you. He was betrayed by those closest to him. And he forgave them. Every one of those disciples. Interestingly, the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18 is followed by Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce in Matthew 19. While Jesus does allow for divorce in certain cases, let us take note that he doesn't command it. As a pastor, I have 
I have witnessed married couples restored to each other after adultery has taken place. Confession and forgiveness is incredibly powerful. The gospel can do miraculous things in our relationships. I think there are likely scenarios where restoration might might not be wise or, or it might not look like things were before. But I do think that forgiveness is possible. And I do think that the scripture calls us to that. Okay. There's a deeper level than that. Level three is what I call it. This is life-altering evil. Rape. Physical or sexual abuse. A loved one killed by a drunk driver. Murder. And I know there are some here who know these evils. And I am so sorry that you do. I wish that you did not. Our world is so broken and evil. Clearly, forgiveness in this realm is difficult. It's complicated. It's quite possible that the person who did such an evil thing isn't even repentant. Yet even in these situations, I think there is a call to forgive. Now, the phrase forgive and forget is absurd in that case. You're never going to forget. But God calls us to love our enemy. Matthew 5, 43 to 48. If God calls us to love our enemy and do good to them, I don't understand how that doesn't involve some level of forgiveness. How do you do that? That's what Alex from Rwanda did. That's what Elizabeth Elliot did with the tribe that killed her husband. And the stories go on and on of people who have been sinned against in horribly evil ways. And yet the Spirit of God moved in them in such a way and they, they felt the gospel in such a way that they extended forgiveness. Isn't it what God did for us in Christ we had life-altering rebellion against a holy God, and he heals that by forgiving. Now, this would no doubt be a painful process, a long one. And I am not saying that there shouldn't be consequences for these kinds of things. There should. The Bible often pictures sin being punished. God even disciplines those he loves. So if he disciplines those he loves, certainly those who have sinned in horrible ways should be dealt with. But I think that even there, there is a call to forgive. Mark eleven twenty five. 25, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. We're called to take up our cross and follow Jesus and this is a cross. And yet, in doing that, we can meet Christ in miraculous ways. Consider Corrie Ten Boom. She wrote of an experience she had in which she entitled it, I'm Still Learning to Forgive. She had been speaking on forgiveness in a church in Munich in 1947. As people left, she noticed a man coming forward. He had been a guard in the concentration camp that she had been in the very place where her sister had suffered and died. 
They had been sent there for concealing Jews in their home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This guard informed her that he had become a Christian and he was asking for her forgiveness. This is what she says. And I stood there. I, whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and I could not. My sister had suffered and died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply by asking? I could not have, it, it, it could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it, I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. This is the power of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, this is not easy. We want to hold on to unforgiveness. And yet we see in you, we see forgiveness. Would you make us this kind of people who live life together in such a way that we are willing to forgive one another, big or small, and we're able, even able to forgive those in the world who have sinned against us? And would you use that act to bring great glory to yourself and great good to us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we come to the table of our Lord. By taking communion, we are identifying ourselves as a follower of Christ. We are celebrating his love and forgiveness extended to us. We are doing this as individuals together. We are all individually admitting to God and to each other that we are all sinners in need of grace and mercy. If it were not for Christ's sacrificial death on the cross, our sins would not be paid for. But our sins are paid for. We are a forgiven people. And forgiven people forgive people. Life together can't happen unless we do. Since we're in a two-service format this morning, uh, we're not going to be quite as rushed 